Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Work, guys. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Ryan Engler, today, and we are talking about her new book, Low Cost Veterinary Clinical Diagnostics. Man, I get super geeked out about this. She's hilarious and amazing, and uh, she may uh, she may take over the world. Uh, definitely listen to the end of this podcast when we talk about her struggles in finding laboratories that would work with her, and ultimately. <laughs> working with a crime scene investigation unit. Um, only veterinarian type problems here. Only veterinarian type problems. So anyway, uh, she is incredible. This is a, such a fun conversation about, about the basics that we have put down and forgotten in vet medicine about using uh, sight, smell, sound, feel. Uh, I don't want to say taste, but you knew I was thinking it. Um, it's, it's all of those things where, uh, you know, We've gotten, we've gotten pretty dependent in a lot of ways on our fancy diagnostics. And they're great. They are wonderful. But boy, there's some value in really just using our eyes and, uh, and having experience of looking at samples. And um, is it possible that we could be extracting a lot more knowledge from just the most basic uh, tests? I, I think probably so. I'm curious what you guys think. But anyway, just uh, check this out. It's such a good conversation. She's really got me inspired uh, to, to start looking at my game and figuring out where are, the, where are the simple little holes in my basic knowledge that would make me a better vet and, and uh, that would help me take better care of pets uh, with basically no cost to the pet owners, just looking at what we're already doing and getting a little bit more out of it. So anyway, guys, fun episode. Let's get into it. This is your show, we're glad you're here, we want to help you in your veterinary career, welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ryan Engler, how are you? Great, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, always enjoy you. Uh, you've been on the, You've been on the show before and I was thrilled to have you back. And I wanted to have you back because you have a new book out. For those who don't know you, you are uh, an associate professor and executive director of clinical and professional skills at the University of Arizona's College of Veterinary Medicine. That is a long title. And you're an author. Uh, this is not your first book, is it? No, this is number 11, if you count the ones that I've been partners <laughs> not with. Qu not quite the first book, no. Uh, but yes. So uh, you have a brand new book out called Low Cost Veterinary Diagnostics. And I was like, that's an interesting that's an interesting title. And I love that you have a, a book uh, on this. Why don't you just go ahead? And, so I want to open this conversation up and, and basically just sort of say, tell me at a high level, tell me what this book is about. Uh, l let's just let's just start there so that I'm not I'm not picturing something in my mind that's not true. Yeah, absolutely. The book started out, the original intent um, was to develop a clinical skills guide or manual for our students, really with respect to uh, blood diagnostic tests, urine and fecal results. But then it quickly okay. expanded. Uh, into what it is today, which is really a, a tool that can be used by that students, uh, new graduates, uh, seasoned graduates, veterinary members of the whole team, so vet techs, um, really even clients uh, for some degree. Uh, and what it is is really looking at what are the tests out there that are point of care that we use each and every day, and how can we maximize the data that we obtain from them, right? And the classic example I'll give from vet school is that by the time I got to fourth year vet school, the internists or a generalist on any service would say, here's a patient, here's the vignette, uh, tell me what test you're going to run. 
right? And, and I graduated from Cornell University, very proud to be a graduate there. Um, but every answer for every vignette was, we need a CBC, a chemistry panel, a urinalysis, uh, yeah. two to three view chest reds, an abdominal ultrasound, maybe an MRI. So quickly it expanded. And that was, yeah. right, the gut reaction of like, that's what they want to hear, good. But we quickly lose sight sometimes of, and I learned that as an educator, why are we doing that, right? If, if we're going to ask a client to run a test, what do we need that for? What are we looking for? Yeah. How are we going to interpret it? And so there's a lot of information we forget. Like, so the book was born out of what can we get and drill down and, and get the max out of a PCV, right? There's an entire chapter on assessing the color and turbidity and smell of urine, right? Uh, a chapter on uh, fecal consistency, fecal color, fecal odor, um, really looking at expanding that tool set so that if we are in situations where we have to scale back, what can we do? And really, let's not feel bad about scaling back. Let's be like, yeah, let's get the most out of this data, whether that's blood, fecal, or urine testing. That's that's fascinating. I So I, I, I really love this. This is... um. You know, a lot, a lot of the mentors I had in medicine were they're much older than me, right? I think it's often the way that it goes. And you kind of come in and they're at the sort of the end of their career and they've got so much experience and so much knowledge. And there's a couple of them. Uh, Dr. Mikey Sher pops to mind. And that guy didn't seem like he needed any diagnosis. He would just, he could just feel the pet and say, ah, oh, I think it's probably this. And darn if he wasn't right all the freaking time. And you always wonder, like, that stuff is so powerful. And, and he would just beat the drum on, you know, he would ask you, where do you want to start? And the answer was the physical exam. And if you said a bunch of stuff, he would shoot you down, which is rare because most people would say exactly what you said, which is we're going to need this litany of tests and this big workup. And he would say physical exam. And then basically he'd be like, and then we're going to see what we have. And then we're going to make a plan from there. And he was so good. He was that guy who could walk in to the treatment room and he would sniff the air and say, and point at a pet and go, that pet has parvo. And he was right. He was like, that, that, that one right there, that's got parvo. And just, it, it was, it was, it was incredible. And so I really love sort of where you're, where you're coming from. Where, where do you see, uh, so I guess, let me, let me say this. If, if veterinarians, if vet technicians had more of this type of knowledge, right? And were more comfortable just using their eyes, their ears, their their nose and and, and their touch and 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 sort of looking at looking at, at patients and, and looking at samples this way. Where do you see the biggest areas of potential impact in taking this approach? What what are things that you see that we're, you know, we're we're, we're just there's such an opportunity here and, and we're not pursuing it. What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, really, it's a, it's a matter of spectrum of care. And it's really looking at um, cost for factors, uh, obviously looking at how can we partner to create a tailored treatment plan and diagnostic plan for a patient who may not be able to do the litany of tests. So that's kind of the first easy pass. When you look at the title, you say, oh, yeah, that's what it's about, right? When I can't do everything. But then if we put that to the side and we think about it on a deeper scale, how do we actually create that partnership and communication with our client of putting that plan forward? So if I'm going to convince a client to do test X, Y, or Z, I really need to make a case for why and what information am I going to get out of there and what am I going to do with that information? So we have to have not only the plan, but the expectation of if I do this and I find result X, Y, and Z, 
how will that actually allow me to better treat your patient? And so I think it opens up those communication windows. Um, it allows questioning, which I think sometimes we get that defensiveness of why is someone questioning why I want to do this certain test? And it can say, oh, well, let me tell you why. Like, let's have that conversation about what is my hope for this pet so that we can actually make it custom, so that we can apply yeah. what we need and the knowledge we have for pet-specific care. So one of the things I like a lot about you, and the, the, it's one of the reasons I first really wanted to talk to you, is, is that, you know, as, as a professor of, of clinical and professional skills, you kind of walk this line between uh, a clinical approach and then also a communication aspect, which which is kind of kind of things that I'm most excited about. I really love that medicine from a challenge standpoint of knowing what to do medically and then also being able to sort of communicate, negotiate, you know, advocate for the pet, like build a relationship with the pet owner and kind of get them get them on board. How, do, how does an approach like what you're talking about change the way that we communicate with pet owners? I mean, does it, is it, is it a different type of, do you break these out and you're like, oh, you know, does, suddenly are you pushing more to say, let's start with a PCV and then we'll run a full blood panel, you know, based on what we see, or do you, or do you go with a full blood panel and just extract a, a extra amount of information? Like, how do you, how do you parse that, I guess? And then sort of how does, how does that really, when the rubber meets the road and you have these skills or you have this focus on really looking deeply at what we're doing and, and extracting the most information possible out of it, how does that change the way that you communicate? Those are all great questions, man. I wish we had like 22 hours straight on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so everybody get some popcorn, sit down. It's going to be a while. No, I'm kidding. Um, I think, I think the hardest part, right, is it does depend on the patient. It depends on the presenting complaint. And ultimately, you know, there's immense value and wealth to doing some of those more advanced diagnostics. So in an emergency situation, I may be more apt to opt for, for full panels. But I think where it really helps is in situations where we may want to do everything, but can't. There's a limitation. Maybe the limitation is cost. That's the most obvious. But maybe the limitation is we might not have the equipment right? Maybe we don't have every upgraded coagulation panel profile we need or would want. So we have to scale back and we have to say, well, what can I do now? You know, maybe it's a weekend and our machine is down and we don't have the ability to get what we need, even if the client could afford that. And so I think it's saying, what can we do? And having a transparent conversation with the client, right? It's, this is what I would like to do and why, and then it becomes a dialogue. And when that owner, which we've all been in that situation, says, you know, I'd love to do everything and I can't. I can't because at X, Y, or Z, cost is often a factor. Okay, let me prioritize. This is what I want to do. And this is actually how I can get the similar information, right? It may not have every single panel item that a chemistry profile would, but this is what I'm going to do. And with this test, I can run out X, Y, and Z. And I think a great example, right, is the blood smear. Um, the blood okay. smear, I remember in clinical year, every single case that walked in the clinic, uh, it didn't matter how the blood was run. You had to run as a student many blood smears that we went through 10 and 15 and 20. We were so bad at creating them. But by the end of that say, fourth it, year. It wasn't that we went through them. It was just that we were so bad at making them. And, yeah. uh, personally, I would, I would take a dozen slides to get one that, was, that I was comfortable showing. To another student, like, oh, this is That's mine. an A plus. I went through like a hundred and then Cornell probably flagged me. It's probably in my system and some record somewhere of all the boxes oh, yeah. I went through. 
But, you know, that blood smear, right? So in school, I, we got used to looking at it. And I then, leverage my technicians that way. That, that's, yeah. That was my workaround was I never got good at it. I just go, you know, leverage your technicians. Not because I can't make a blood smear. That's not why. Right. But because because I value them. That's that's they, why I let them go. Uh, and, and you know what? They're the ones who soar in our clinical skills lab teaching our students Absolutely. how to do it. So I'm all for that, right? I think where we get weak is we forget to look at those blood smears or have someone <laughs> who has to go look at them, right? True. And so days go by, weeks, years, and I'm cringing to say it, but there were many a day in private practice where my I eat that and then they look at the automated analyzer. Yeah. Then we well, should I think get, that's really right? We should. I mean, sorry, I, I, I think that's really defensible. You know what I mean? Of like, we've got these awesome analyzers and they do all the things. You know what I mean? And you go, why do I need to look under the microscope when I've got this beautiful scatter plot that lays out all of the things? You know what I mean? And like, as we have artificial intelligence, it's just, you know, it gets easier and easier. I, I think in life in general, it's getting easier and easier to be a little bit intellectually lazy. Of just being like, you know what, like, let's just pop in the computer and see what the rent comes. And I, I, I know that there's a downside to that. I feel like there's a downside to that as far as our skin. I think we all really want to be, uh, you know, James Harriet meets Crocodile Dundee, who can just kind of, you know, <laughs> like Bush medicine, where, uh, where if the, if there was, we talk, we take great pride as a profession in how well we would do in a zombie apocalypse. I don't know if you've noticed that, but there's a <laughs> yeah, lot of people. Yeah, all the memes out there. Yeah, there's a lot of memes. There's a lot of people who take great pride in how well they think that vets would do in a zombie apocalypse. And to th I, those are the people who need to buy your book. Like, I'm like, if you think you would make it, you should have this book because <laughs> this is how you'll continue to practice after the zombie apocalypse. And I, anyway, I was sort of a bit of a digression, but it's just to say it, I, I feel it's almost like it's easy just to spend time on the more and more time on the couch. If you have a more and more comfortable couch, it's almost like we have a more and more comfortable couch in a lot of ways with our diagnostics and stuff. And you go, boy, the ability just to look at the blood smear, that's real. Like that's no one can take that away from you. And man, what a useful tool in your toolbox. And I, I can tell you, I'm, I am a hundred percent guilty of just look at scatter plot. You know what I mean? And just going, oh, you know, let's, let's see what we got here and go on. It's absolutely me too. Right. It's easy. Like you said, I think that's a perfect analogy about the couch. And so then what happens, right? We get the case where we can't get that scatter blood and then we feel yeah. frozen and, and paralysis. Right. And so having that ability to say, all right, let's keep those skills fresh. Um, we have a whole chapter in looking at the Buffy coat, right? And how many times have I not looked at the Buffy coat in practice? And I'll I'll be honest with my students. I'm like, you know what? This textbook reignited a fire in me because it taught me the areas I got lazy or the things that I forgot, right? Or the things about the urine dipstick that I just took for granted. And then I realized, oh, that's right. There's a certain cleaner I cannot put in cat cages or dog kennel cages. Then an animal pees in the kennel in the hospital. I can't just put the dipstick on that surface because it's contaminated. And now yeah. it's going to cause a false positive or negative. And so... It has really cool little tips and tricks and pointers. Um, my my co-author was amazing, Dr. Sharon Dial. She's a clinical pathologist. So she filled in all the gaps that I had forgotten. Uh, so it was yeah. a learning experience for me. That's what we hope. It's really um, a celebration, I want to think about it, not a critique or criticism of all the immense wealth of diagnostic testing we have. That has a place forever in my heart. I respect it, but it's uh, looking at uh, what else is there? Let's celebrate what we can do when we are in that apocalypse, as you say. Oh, yeah.
If you uh, dream of doing team training with your team, getting your people together, getting them on the same page, talking about uh, how you guys work together in your practice, I'd love to help you. You can check out drandywork.com and check out the store. I have two different team training courses. These are courses for teams to do together to get on the same page and to talk about how you do things. Uh, do things. I have my uh, angry clients course and I have my exam room toolkit course and uh, they are both available and there to come out. All right, guys, let's get back into this episode. Well, I, I, I just, I like this a lot. I've been thinking a lot about artificial intelligence recently. So like the chat GPT stuff, I think is really interesting. I, I think it's going to fundamentally change medicine. It's definitely going to fundamentally change the way we interact with pet owners and, and the knowledge that they come with. I mean, there's, these are big changes and they are right around the corner. And I look at that and I, I, I do think a lot about how it's going to interact with us. And um, I don't think that, that like artificial intelligence is going to replace practitioners. I think it's going, I think we need to adapt around it a bit so that we say we have these AI tools that are great and amazing. And also we should be just rock solid on the fundamentals and, and so that we can leverage them to the, to the maximum potential and, uh, and, and know how to use them and, and, you know, and still be, and still be entirely relevant and be confident and comfortable, you know, in our skin and, and, and in our role as the as the healthcare provider, and so I just this book just just really hits on on that for me. I I imagine what it was like sort of writing this book, and it, it, to me, it, it, you just you explained uh, sort of checking yourself and sort of finding these areas. And to me, I, I think that that would be the most fascinating thing. Is I'm sure you sort of had these discoveries and unlocked these things that go that go deeper maybe than than you had in the past. And you're a very accomplished veterinarian. You're you said uh, you're boarded uh, by the ABVP and. Um, and, and, and you've been uh, teaching this for a, for a long time, but were there areas when you started to kind of dig into the research for this book, or were there things that, that really unlocked for you or there, were there areas that you, you were surprised by how much depth there was that you either weren't using or weren't really aware that you could get uh, information from? Yeah, great point. I would say every single chapter, right? I think that especially the ones that I had to write and then Dr. Dial would go over them and we would sit side by side because um, each one of us would either lead a chapter or be the buddy up and help. And I think that for me, uh, much of it was checking the knowledge that I knew and where did it come from? Like so many things in life, right? You you have this um, saying or a motto or you're like, I learned this 8,000 times in vet school. It has to be true. And then you write the book and you're like, mm, is that real? Did that actually happen? Is that true? Did I make that up? <laughs> right? Did yeah. someone else tell me? And, and I just assumed that it was true. So I think for me, as with every book writing experience, just the literature review, finding out, oh yes, that actually is documented, and this is where it came from, um, is, is so helpful uh, because then it does check yourself. Right? Is is what I'm telling the next generation truly right, or is it yeah. because I remember someone somewhere in my past told me to believe it? And I just accepted it. Were there were there anything, any examples that come to your mind of things that you were like, oh, no, this isn't true? Gosh, I wish, you know, what? there probably are thousands of them. I think I think for me, it was just the reminder, right? When we were going through, I'm, I'm stuck on the same Buffy coat example of going through. And when Dr. Dio and I reached and, and wrote the table of contents, right, I filled in what I knew. And she's like, maybe we should do a Buffy coat chapter. And I'm like, what? The Buffy coat? Yeah. Um, what do I know about that? Like, yeah. When you said that, that was I the experience I had. Is. Yeah. When you said I'm that like, was the exact oh. experience I had was like, oh, the Buffy coat. Yeah. What do I know or, about not you know, much? 
right? Or a total protein, right? Again, and, and I I'm I love to, to tell my students this because sometimes I think they just think I know everything. And I'm like, oh no, that's why there's a library in my office. Like I need to reference stuff. Um, total protein, right? As a vet, I know how to get it, right? Or my technicians use the refractometer. They get the value. They give it to me. I can interpret it, but how much do I really know deep, right? I can give you the differentials, high protein, low protein, but let's just, everything's unpacking more and more so that it's not just a one sentence answer. It's let's dig deeper beneath that. Um, and other areas of the book made me want to explore more. For example, you mentioned parvo, right? And smelling um, the yeah. smell of parvo. And and for me, the chapter on fecal color, odor, consistency um, ignited my spark in, in another crazy area of my brain, which was why do clinical skills labs like the ones I teach only focus on visual things and tactile things? There's zero olfactory clinical labs in vet med and, and not in human healthcare in the military, yes. So I've spent three years trying to create uh, diagnostics work to develop olfactory cues that we can actually bring into the classroom. So in another a six stink, months, stink yes. you came up with a stink test. Okay. Yeah. So I'm working with a, a crime scene investigation lab on that. And uh, they're the only ones that would take uh, bio samples because believe it or not, in my my crazy quest, I found that uh, most of the the companies that use mass spectrometry to evaluate scent are food companies like uh, the cereal companies because if clients are like, my cornflakes stink, yeah. like, it smells like mold, we got to fix this, right? So they go to these labs. Well, I had lots of talks with these labs. They were wonderful people. I thought I was very clear about we have fecal samples from dogs. And then we reached a point that was pivotal on every call. Wait a second. You want to send fecal samples? to my cereal lab. No, we're not doing that. We're not contaminated. <laughs> I, I, so many doors got shut down, right? Oh, I yeah. got them sold and they're like, wait, we're not, a, we're not actually. The... So I finally found the crime right. team investigation people and now we're hopeful. Um, but this but is that's, amazing. That's huge, right? So maybe in six months, I'll have that, you know, uh, I think, I think the biggest uh, downside is where are we going to test that? So nobody wants to be the guinea pig in our in our faculty suite office to test the part of yeah. scent. <laughs> oh yeah, you you have mad scientist problems. Did you know that? <laughs> like you have you run into the problems that great inventors uh, like Dr. Frankenstein have run into again and again, which is people closing doors in your face, asking <laughs> asking what, what you're doing with a dead body, things like that. Um, I I love that you have a crime scene investigation team who's like, yeah, we'll talk to you. Uh, that makes me so happy. What um, what does a stink lab look like? I don't know if that, if that name's going to stick. Uh, I don't know if you like it. But to me, uh, Ryan runs stink labs. What what does this look like? Help me help me understand like what this would even be like. I, I'm assuming that yeah. the olfactory stuff is hard because it's hard to it's hard to quantify, you know, and say, oh, this is. This is a this is a five. This one's a five. Uh, I don't know how you do that with a smell, um, but yeah, it's pretty. It seems pretty uh, sort of subjective. Help me help me understand. Like, what it, what does that look like from a training standpoint? I think it's fascinating. No, that's that's a great point. Um, basically, uh, what we're looking at is we have to find the olfactory fingerprints of different 
disease processes and biosamples. And so parvo seemed to me the easiest uh, starting point because it smells bloody, right? There's this metallic component. If you if you pull all of us, there's this heme component coming from the blood. And so um, my, my hope was we could find that compound in it. So you have to actually take a sample, pulverize it. There's lots of ways to do that. Uh, and basically it has to run through a very fancy mass spectrometry machine uh, that's going to spit out uh, a little pattern, we hope, that can right. differentiate normal diarrhea that's not parvopositive from diarrhea that is parvopositive. So the hope is by by going through enough samples, you can find the blueprint or fingerprint. So once you find the fingerprint, we now can identify what those compounds are and you can put them together, kind of like a perfume factory, into one little concoction. And it could be liquid or it could be infused on like a, a little pad, kind of like those scratch and sniff stickers that that probably aren't allowed anymore that we used when I was a kid. They're probably very toxic, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen them for a while to buy them for my niece. So something sketchy about that. But um, the idea would be we would then be able to build that into a lab. And so the example I have, and it's the only one I've found um, when I was trying to figure out how to make this possible, I, I get a lot of simulation catalogs and I found one from a nursing program and they had okay. a fake vomit and they wouldn't tell me what was in the fake vomit. They said, you have to buy it. And, it's proprietary. Uh, yeah, it's proprietary. Buy it and call the manufacturer. So I said, all right, great. This was pre-crime lab. So I call, I order it. It arrives by FedEx. Well, I'm teaching another class. It comes, all everything comes to this main depot. And all of a sudden, students in my lab are like, is somebody really sick in here, right? We're in a classroom oh, wow. down the hall. They're like, somebody threw up. I don't know where that's coming from. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of students run to the bathroom. They're like, we feel really ill. Somebody comes down from the main office. They're like, Dr. Engler, there's this package up front and it really stinks. And they hand me like this box and it had been like crushed by the FedEx people. I love FedEx, no offense, but it yeah. was crushed. The whole thing was leaking, this fluid in the whole oh, like, Mad um, scientist problems. That's what this is. Like, <laughs> people were like, don't, don't do it, Ryan. So, so now I'm going to have to do my test outside in Arizona because everyone does not want that. But especially I'm after sure. COE comes to visit, right? We don't want the accrediting bodies turned away. But my thought would be if you can do this, Parvo is our first pilot. Uh, it's very expensive and I have no no grant money external to do it. So we have to do very few samples and hope for the best. Um, then we could do things for uh, the ketotic breath. You could do all kinds of different aromas, right? Pseudomonas for otitis, right? That horrible rancid smell that we all kind of know. And then we're like, we need to culture this year. That's rank, right? It would be great to be able to recreate that, Um and it is, it's very Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> so maybe my love of Broadway musicals has uh, has inspired it. But things like that make me want to come to work, right? Want to create things because if we can do that, then we know what, like if you can just train someone to recognize that smell, but think about the utility of every other area. So if yeah. we forget just diagnostic, think about uh, individuals that pass out in surgery because the smell of cautery and they just need sensitization or desensitization or people who pass out because the smell of items in necropsy or the sight and smell of blood in surgery. 
But if you could partner with psychology departments and actually help individuals, maybe you could be the next neurosurgeon, but there's some kind of a gap because um, blood smell makes you feel sick. So let's recreate all of that, have its own little lab and figure out a way to get people to do what their strengths are. So yeah, yeah, I'm always thinking about things. Well, I'll tell you, I'll help you out right here. So I do escape rooms with my wife. And so we, we always go and we, I just, we love them. And so anyway, we, there, we did an escape room and there were these little metal containers and they all looked identical, except they had little holes punched in, in one end. And then there was this door and it had a little tray on it. And, um, and there were like little symbols of different, you know, herbs and, and things like that. You would kind of sunflowers and things like that you would recognize. And, um, and the idea was you were supposed to smell these containers because they had a scent inside. And then when you put them onto the tray in the right order, the door would open. And <laughs> I was just thinking that that could be like your exam. And when they when they put the things on the tray, the thing unlocks and they can leave. They can go home for the day and they're done with lab. And so I don't know. I just sit with that a little bit. Yeah, um, I love that I, idea. I, I just put it in your... It's less mad scientist than you usually go, uh, but... <laughs> I could but, tone down but, a bit for you. I, I could make or, that work. Or tone or tone the door up a bit. I don't know. We can we can get I'm sure you can find a, a cursed door from an old temple, <laughs> something like that, that w- would impress your colleagues. Anyway, <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for being here. I'm gonna put a, a link to your book down in uh down in the show notes. Um where where can people find you? Where can they learn more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for this textbook, it's published by Wiley Blackwell. So you could go straight to the Wiley Blackwell website uh, for your country, right? The U.S., but there's also European versions of that. And you can buy direct from Wiley Blackwell. If you're an instructor, I don't know what the stipulations are, but uh, there's a link where instructors could request a free copy to look at, right? If you were thinking about incorporating it into your classroom. Um, so that's the best reason to go to the Wiley site. Um, others, uh, my students get a free free access to the University of Arizona because we have an ebook user license that's unlimited. Um, but other students from other universities can go to Amazon.com. Sometimes you get a price break depending on how they do those algorithms. So I also have an author page on Amazon.com. So you can also link to not just my other Wiley Blackwell textbooks, but also my 5M textbooks and soon Taylor and Francis and elsewhere. Awesome. I'll put links in the show notes. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And that is our episode, guys. That's what I got for you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Thanks to Ryan Engler for being here. Again, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, I'll share it with your friend and or leave me an honest review wherever you get your podcast. That is how people find the show. It really means a lot to me. I, I always love it when people leave uh, leave nice positive reviews and, and pats on the back and, and things like that, or even constructive feedback of things you'd like to see, see more of or things we could do differently. Anyway, guys, take care of yourselves. Be well. I'll talk to you later on. Bye.